You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey, everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Chuck Marone with the Strong Towns Podcast. This is Disruptive Conversations, and I am here with the host of Disruptive Conversations, Keita Deming. Hey. Hey, Chuck. It's an honor to be able to interview you to turn the tables. Thanks for doing this. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. I'll be on the other end for once. Exactly. You and I did a really fun podcast interview kind of pushed me outside of my normal comfort zones. I will try to do the same with you. How does that sound? <laughs> Sounds like a plan. That's the whole point. The whole point is to get people feeling uncomfortable and rethinking, rethinking their, their scripts, as I like to say. Exactly. A little bit disruptive. Just a, just a little bit, just gently. So you're going to take a break here for a while, and we're going to kind of sign off with this one. Let's talk about that at the end, but I, let's go back to the start here. What in the world are you doing with a podcast? Why, why did you start this thing? What is it about this medium that, that got you uh, wanting to, uh, to have disruptive conversations? So when I was doing my PhD, I wanted to do something like this as my PhD project, but I couldn't com- convince the committee that to, to use this as my PhD project. So when I finished... I just decided, you know what, I'm just going to do it anyway. And instead of just doing closed interviews, why not open up the interviews to the world so that everybody can benefit from it? And then it's sort of spiraled and snowballed from there, and people have been really giving me good feedback, enjoying the content, the people I'm interviewing, etc. So it's kind of me, I like to call it poor impulse control. <laughs> it's just something I can't. <laughs> I feel compelled to interview people who are really interested in changing a sector or system. What's your PhD work in? Um, I looked at social innovation. So everybody talks about social innovation. And I, when I was entering my PhD, I just come from a think tank called Social Innovation Generation. And they were doing a lot of social innovation work in Canada. And people were still very confused about what that was. And when I got into my program, I decided, how about I spend my time trying to figure out what do we mean by social innovation and why do we care? What's the relevance for a world, like a modern world? How do we make this a relevant topic? So I ended up writing about social innovation and looking at midwives, actually, and how midwives are an example of social innovation and how in Canada, and I did a bit of it in Trinidad as well, it became a part of the public healthcare system and how it really transformed the experience of birth for women. What is your background? I mean, I, I know you're from Trinidad, right? Yeah, I'm from Trinidad originally. Yeah. I mean, what's your undergrad and graduate degree? How do you how do you get to a PhD <laughs> in social, social disruption? Innovation. Yeah, social innovation. That's a really convoluted route. Um, That's good. I, I want to hear it. I did my undergrad in. Cognitive systems, which nobody knows what that is. They, well, they didn't know what it was then. And some people know what it is now, but it's the early phases of what we would now call AI or artificial intelligence. So I was in the psychology stream of a program that looked at linguistics, psychology, philosophy, and computer science. 
So we would be talking about philosophy of the brain and talking about, okay, how do you map, how do you code neural networks? How do you replicate neural networks in code? How do you write computer programs where computers can talk to each other, etc.? So I did that as my undergrad, and I really fell in love with systems thinking and dynamics kind of thing. And then while I was at the University of British Columbia, I was working on a program that was really focused on how do you transform the international student experience there. And I fell in love with organizational change. And I had a boss who looked at me and said, if you are here in two years, I'm personally going to fire you <laughs> because you shouldn't be at the university working with students like this. You have to go out into the real world. And I took that cue, went and found an organizational change master's program in Manchester, UK. Went and did that program, got an award for the best thesis. And by the way, that was the first time I've ever got an academic award in my life. Wow. I was like one of those students who never did well in school. And then realized, hey, you're good at this thing. You understand organizational change. You understand organizational dynamics. It's your passion. You found you found what your calling is. So then I just decided to pursue a PhD as well. But I've been, along the way, I've been really lucky to get caught up in think tanks and get caught up with people who are really at the forefront of the game and writing their coattails and learning a lot from them. And then my podcast is kind of a way to keep that going. Like, how do we get more knowledge and make and distill all of this and figure out how do you address complex problems? That's essentially how I got to a PhD in social innovation. Why do you call the podcast Disruptive Conversations? What is it that you're trying to convey with that notion? So everybody is really interested in disruption as a disruptive innovation. And Erling Christiansen is kind of the person that people reference for that. And that's when an incumbent is disrupted by, uh, let's call it a David, who is usually servicing some client that they didn't want to serve and eventually disrupts that sector and transforms the entire sector. There's a notion in organizational change where organizations are seen as conversations versus machines. So if you look at early management theory, we talk about like Ford and that kind of thing. We think about efficiency and we think about organizations as these machines that we can impose control over. There's a notion around organizations as conversations where conversations is a medium through which things get done. It's how you change things. So focusing on the local interactions of how people, what people do and say actually is the key to transforming organizations. So my sort of thesis was that if you can have disruptive conversations, conversations that change the scripts to which people are used to having, that's how you transform organizations, sectors, or systems. But you have to be willing to figure out how do we have these disruptive conversations in safe, honest, respectful ways where people are not fired and people's feelings are not hurt, but people can push boundaries, etc. So that's where the term disruptive conversations come from. It's like a mix of disruptive innovation and organizational change theory. I don't know the historical basis of this, but it seems like right now, this is the question of our age. We're in a sense in this place where change happens so quickly. 
but it is disruptive for a lot of people. I feel like a, a lot of the reason why it's disruptive is because those conversations maybe aren't happening the way that they should. They happen in a different place or in a different you know way. How much of this is you trying to get some of this stuff out in the open? And how much of this is you exploring, you know, interesting concepts and ideas? It's a bit of both. It's always both. Like it's, and one of the reasons I didn't focus on a sector system deliberately because I think there's lots to learn from across sectors. So I'll give you an example. If I say to you, and if I'm giving a talk or something like that, I like to start my talk by saying, hey, Chuck, can you name a social movement? Give me an example of a social movement. Me? Uh, right yeah. now, Black Lives yeah. Matter. Black Lives Give me an example of another one. Uh, the women's suffrage. Right. Most people would, would name social movements similar to that. They would say women's movement. They would say... Generally, they would say social movements that are aligned with their own values. Sure. When I was doing my thesis, one of the things that st stood out for me was that I realized, wait a minute, KKK, alt-right, Hamas, all of these sort of extremists on the right are also social movements, but we don't study them I and mean, we ignore them. So that in itself is like a disruption in how we think and how the assumptions we make coming into a situation. So, and one of the reasons I do that is because I'm thinking, okay, we are ignoring a whole section of people who are very successful at building social movements and we're not learning from them. So alt-right right now is a very good example of that. They are very successful at recruiting people. So is what we call ISIS and we keep turning, changing that term, but they're recruiting people very successfully. What can we learn from them? And it's, and that's a very uncomfortable conversation that people struggle with. But when they think about it, they're like, yeah, those are social movements. I may not like it. It makes me feel uncomfortable, but they are social movements. And it's very hard to deny that. I read a, an article once about Hamas that changed my, uh, my understanding and view of them. And it, it really focused on that movement part. The fact that, a lot of the reasons for their success was that they filled a need that, that people had that wasn't filled somewhere else. How much of these disruptive conversations, how, how much of this organizational change is part of that kind of filling of a void? Is that a big component of organizational change? Yeah, often because most organizations, are, they're changing to meet some kind of need. Right. So why are you embarking on this organizational change? There's something missing. There's something not working for you. So where can you learn from people who are, who have a, a missing void? It's a very fast stretch to go from alt right to a small tech startup. And what can you learn from that? But the small tech startup is trying to build a movement in the same way that some kind of social movement is trying to build a movement. The small tech startup, they want to build a movement of people who fall in love with their products. What can you learn from those two things? You know what I mean? It's a, it's a very far connection, but it's very relevant. And people, there, there are all kinds of theorists who do a lot of good work thinking about how do you make these small companies into movements that people fall in love with, etc. Starbucks is a good example of that. If you think about people who go and buy Starbucks, most of the times it's they don't even know, they don't even think about whether or not they want a Starbucks. Part of it is the image of walking into the office place with your Starbucks in your hand, with your briefcase, with whatever. Part of it is a culture now. 
You know what I mean? I'm smiling. It's yes, like, I know exactly what it's you like, mean. <laughs> it, just, it just becomes part of you. You don't even you don't even think about do I even want the coffee today? It's just part of your routine. You know, and they they built a sort of cultural look and image that people ascribe to. So it's there are some really interesting connections that when you get into boardrooms or you get into tech spaces and you start to compare what people are trying to do with their small little startups or even well-established companies, what they're trying to do and the parallels between social movements are massive. So yeah, and I and I'm learning a lot and it's it's really good for me when I'm working with companies, etc. It's it's I'm learning all the time, coming up with new frameworks and helping to get people to think through what are they really trying to bring into the world. So I want you to not be humble for a second. What is it that you have learned through your work and, and through the podcast and, and through your PhD? What do you know that you wish other people knew? The thing that I struggle with is that I think people understand this intuitively, but I think it's hard for them to put it into practice. There's a famous thing that people talk about. Things that are urgent and important get done. Things that are important but not urgent get put on the back burner. The real valuable work in most contexts is work that's important but not urgent. Take a very simple thing like exercising. If you want to live till 80 and have a and be healthy and not be on walking with crutches and not need hip surgery, etc., you have to pay a lot of attention to the thing that's important but not urgent. So doing exercises that maintain your strength until then, you have to do that now. But it's very easy for us to delay that. If we have this sort of bias towards doing what is in the short term and we ignore what's in the long term. Honestly, it's just that simple that I think a lot of companies, because of the pressure, because of the stress and resources, because of the competition, they're focusing almost 100% of their energy in that urgent and not important box and ignoring that box that's important but not urgent. That's I find that to be the hardest conversation for me to get with clients and working with people to try and move them out of this reactive strategy and start thinking two, three, four, five years out. Well, let me ask you then, what is it in your life that is important but not urgent that you need to work on? What What do you do when you're not interviewing people, when you're not uh, working on the, the, the PhD what, what so are those actually, things? Well, when I'm not doing that, like on, on my, my professional, right now I've found, my, I found a little home in fintech, helping companies really think through this. So in Canada, there's, at least in Toronto, I should say, there's sort of upsurge in small tech companies. Um, and I found a home in developing workshops around innovation to help small tech companies think about who they want to be in the world in 5, 10, 15 years. And, and partly the belief is that a lot of the talent is moving from that would have gone to the U.S. because of your immigration policies at the moment is now coming to Canada. So in Toronto, there's a little hotspot of people who are really looking to leverage software. And I've been doing a lot of work with people who are working in fintech, financial tech, and really thinking about 
How do we work with millennials? How do we work? What does blockchain mean for us? As an incumbent bank, what do we need to think about so that we're not disrupted 5, 10, 15 years from now? And those are really, it's, it's sort of accidental. It's just um, somebody saw some work that I was doing. They said, hey, can you apply this in in the corporate environment? I said, yeah. And now all of a sudden it's spiraling. So it's super exciting work where we're really focusing on how do we really find performance for companies thinking from innovation and thinking from a disruption lens. Sometimes you do design thinking, sometimes you do systems thinking, um, sometimes you just do straight up problem solving and thinking through innovation. Let me ask you a personal question. How do you find time to think about these things? What you're talking about, you know, systems thinking is not something that you just sit down and I'm, I'm assuming this, but not something you just sit down and, you know, it comes to you. It's not like a math problem uh, where you can, you know, work through it, or it's not like reading a book. You've got to delve into something, but then you've got to take some time to mull things over, right? How do you fit that in to your, your day? I, I, I don't think it's easy, but I, I do think I was fortunate, fortunate enough to have had time to do a PhD and do a master's where you have time to think about these problems. So in my master's program, I really focus on complexity theory. Just saying complexity theory, people's eyes begin to glaze over. But Brenda Zimmerman, who was one of my mentors when I worked at, she worked at Social Innovation Generation. I learned a lot from her work. She used to say that there are sort of three or four types of problems. They're simple problems, which are kind of like a recipe, like baking a cake. So it's pretty repeatable. Most people can, if I give you the recipe for Betty Crocker cake, most people can do it. I'm, I may not be particularly good at it, but most people can do that. That's a problem that's simple, predictable. You know what's going to happen. Complicated problems are more like launching a rocket, organizing a conference with 10,000 people and 30 different breakout routes. That's a complicated problem. But with enough time and resources, you can figure that out and you can make that conference happen. With a complex problem, it's more like raising a child. So as a parent changes their, their response, the child changes their response. The child changes their behavior response. The parent now changes their response. That's a continuous dynamic situation. So... I was, by learning to read and spend time with people like that, I took that and I said, okay, what if we took concepts like systems thinking, integrative thinking, design thinking, and evaluative thinking, and I could teach them to 13 to 19-year-olds. My thinking there was if I could teach them that, I could teach anybody how to do problem solving using these frameworks. So for five years, I spent building curriculum around how to do problem solving using those frameworks. So I'm lucky we have had time to now think about how do we teach these things? How do we teach people to apply these things in real life? And I started by teaching young people and now I'm doing it in corporate world, which, uh, which is I think lucky. And now when I read a book, all I'm doing is adding to existing frameworks. And part of my work is I'm being paid to think. So I'm being paid. People are saying, hey, we need an innovation workshop that helps us achieve this objective. Because I have this deep knowledge, we can now draw on that and I can 
get new things happening, but I'm always constantly learning, always constantly looking for new things. For example, my wife and I took two weeks, when we posted your podcast, actually, we took two weeks off when we were at a cottage, no internet, etc. And all I did that whole time was read, read and reflect that. So you got to carve the time out for that reflection. So it's, and it's a good question. And I'm relentlessly taking notes, making frameworks and trying to figure out, okay, how does this, how can people use this? How is this useful for people? I want to ask you a question about complexity. As you're working with people in different professions and, and in different, you know, business environments, how often do you run into people who are dealing in complex realms who treat them either as, as complicated undertakings or, or simple undertakings and don't grasp the uh, complex nature? How, how, how big of a hurdle is that? That's every day. That is every day. I, what, what drives that? Is that a human failing? Is that a, you know, what, what drives that? I have an answer. I don't know if it's the right answer for that. If I'm working with an entrepreneur, an entrepreneur is moving quickly and trying to keep a business afloat. So he or she doesn't have time to go deep on a particular project. So what happens is that it, they're doing short, shortcut thinking. They're doing really quick sort of thinking. So because of that, you're not getting people going, thinking about things really deeply. Complex problems require iteration and and they require a very different approach than a simple or complicated or complex problem. One of the issues is I don't even think people realize that there are those three kinds of problems. If people realize that once I do that in a workshop, people are be able to jump to and understand it's like a massive turning point for people. I'll give you an example. So one of the things I'm hoping to do is one day turn my thesis into a book. And the core argument in that book will be that most people are applying simple solutions to complex problems all the time. So I did a consulting job really early in my career, about six years ago, and it didn't go well at all. Me, the CEO and I couldn't see eye to eye. The proposals that he was putting forward, I was like, this doesn't work. And I realized that the problem was I was working in a complexity framework or paradigm, and he was working in a complicated or simple paradigm. So when we were speaking at the time, I was blaming him. I was like, he's an idiot. I don't like this guy. He's stubborn. He's author authoritarian, etc." Three, four years later, having reflected on it, I realized it wasn't, I realized that I was my fault because I didn't set that up well to explain what's the difference between simple, complicated, and complex problems. And honestly, once you have a different paradigm, it changes everything you're working in. So to answer your question, I think it happens every day and people don't realize because how do I, how do I connect with you to get a task done. You and I can set up meetings. We can do a routine. We can set up all the technologies. We can collaborate. All of those are simple or complicated things. Where complexity comes in is the minute you and I have a relationship, if I say something that offends you, all of a sudden I'm dealing with a complex problem because the complexity comes in the human connections. You can never apply that a recipe to that. We can never re apply a very strict sort of regimented approach that that's going to require a lot of 
let's say, relationship building, focusing on keeping the motivation high, things like motivation, things like thinking things through. There are pieces of your work that are complex and there are pieces of your work that are simple. So I think every day I'm coming across that problem of where people are working in the wrong paradigm. I'm rereading uh, Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow. I'm assuming that's... Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It it seems like what you're describing is people who, you know, as humans, we're comfortable with the, the kind of system one reaction. But system two is the two working together kind of to undermine our, our ability to think about complex systems. You know, it, it kind of forces us into kind of simple, like you say, the simple solutions to complex problems. But like, but for example, one, one of the things that many people don't know about me is that when I was doing my master's program, I was, I, I was teaching salsa as a way to get through my master's program. Teaching, when you teach, so, teaching dance, you mean? Yeah, salsa dance. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's a long story you could, you could say for another podcast. Now, hang on a sec. You said to get through it. Do you mean like, you know, to pay for it or to mentally cope with it? Or what, were you, what well, do you both. mean? It was both. It okay. was both. All right. It was to pay for, pay for it and like mentally. It was great because I didn't have to take that work home with me and I was teaching people to dance salsa. But the point of that was that if I teach you the basics of salsa, the six steps that you learn, I once you get to a point where you no longer have to think about those six steps, your dancing ex- improves exponentially. If I teach you 10 to 15 moves and you get to the point where you've learned those moves that you're no longer consciously thinking about it, once you get past those 15, your dancing imp- improves exponentially again. Same thing as you go up. So as you learn more and more moves, you can begin to combine more and more patterns. And then your dancing improves exponentially because now you can combine moves that you never saw together. So what's happening there is that in your, when you're working in your system one, you, you're performing well because you've learned that You've done it enough times in your in your systems too, which is your slow, your frustrating part of it. So I used to tell students, if you're not frustrated, you're probably not learning because you're trying something that you haven't done before. But there comes a point when it becomes automatic and it shifts into that system one. And it's a very – I like Daniel Kahneman's work because of that. What's very hard for people is that I am trying – a lot of my work is trying to ask people is – how do you sit in systems two, which is slow, complicated, difficult thinking work, and it's tiring, and it's frustrating? How do you sit there long enough to begin to address the problem? And I find that's part of that simple, complicated, complex paradigm that in that zone, when you when you will be doing that slow thinking, it is very difficult and painful for people. People don't like it. It's frustrating. Right, right. It's it's hard, but that's the work that I do. I do that work every single day. <laughs> what do you find the most challenging about what you do? It's exactly that. It's 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 getting people to understand the complexity, getting people to understand that basically most of what you've been taught in management is not from a complexity paradigm. All of the management, most of management literature comes from Ford. It comes from an assumption that we are running efficient machines, and we're not. 
And by Ford, you mean you mean the assembly line model, assembly line, yeah. sort of kind of approach where you they call it Fordism um, at the time, where there's an assumption that if I put this plan in place, we can follow this plan A to B. One of my favorite quotes is Mike Mike Tyson: "Everybody's got a plan until they get hit. <laughs> Every company is going to get hit." Right. So, and then if you look at um, I'm blanking on his name right now. Anyway, what he talks about is that he studied like a hundred organizations and their strategy plans. And what he noticed was that most people have an intended strategy and the strategy that actually came into being. Very few companies come out on the on the tail end of their strategic planning with the plan that they had at front matching the plan that was actually implemented. So there's an assumption that if I do this big upfront plan, I'm going to be able to follow it to a T. And we need to understand that the world is not predictable. It's not linear. And things do get in the way. And we're not very good at that. We spend so much time trying to guarantee these outcomes and impose control when it's not it's not possible. When you do your show, you ask people for a metaphor for disruption. What is your metaphor? So I don't have a metaphor right now, but I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about a metaphor of somebody I interviewed, and he's a professor from the University of Toronto. I haven't published his podcast. I'm gonna publish his podcast in season two, and he said it beautifully, and it just really resonated with me. And he said, for so long, management literature has thought about the world as if my task is to get from one side of the river to the other side of the river. What I do is I get in a powerboat and I just charge across and I get there and I create all these waves and ripples. So that's sort of a simple approach. His point was that now we're entering an age where we have to take an approach that's more like a sailboat where complex problems, in order to address them, we have to sit on the side of the shore and say, okay, is there wind today? Will we be able to launch today? Is the weather right? I think we can try and make it. When you're across, we need to switch the sails. We're going to constantly adjust. And I found that metaphor to be absolutely beautiful when thinking about how do we address complex problems. And then there's another one that I quite like, which is a good, good friend of mine, um, Rick Young. He talks about how if you think about complexity or complex problem solving, like tending a garden, it really transforms how you think about organizations. So you can plant seeds, but you never know which seeds are going to germinate. You never know what's going to bud. You constantly have to be looking for weed. You constantly have to be looking for pesticides. And at the end of the summer or the end of the harvest, you don't know or you can't guarantee what's going to come out at the end of that. So I like those two metaphors. One is a gardening metaphor and one is a sailboat metaphor that I quite like as thinking about how do we engage in these disruptive conversations and how do we engage in innovation. Does this change what we think of as a leader? The stereotype for a leader is someone who is decisive, strong-willed, action-oriented, Nassim Taleb, who's one of my favorite authors, has argued, I think, quite 
convincingly to me that a, a lot of what we point to as great leaders are simply the result of luck. Like, I mean, they were, they were the ones who, if you started a race with a hundred people, they're the ones that ended, you know, in, in front and we create a backstory and point to all these characteristics. Yet all these other people who failed had the same characteristics. Are you talking about leadership in a different way now than what I think socially maybe we're used to? So I think I think what you're referring to is charismatic leadership. And I personally wouldn't be a fan of I'm not an advocate of that approach to leadership. One of the things that we we teach in our work is that leadership comes from everywhere. Leadership is not a top-down thing where you have this person at the top who's going to charge everybody and take charge like that. It's it's more distributed leadership. At the moment, I'm very into thoughtful leadership where you have people who are creating a vision and are building that movement. So all the people in that organization, in that group, are working towards that end goal. So leadership to me more is about how do we get people to join this movement and do this work in a way that makes sense. So so for example, you think about Greenpeace. Greenpeace has what they call a scale-free model where each chapter is doing their own thing, but they're following their, their general principles are followed by Greenpeace, but each chapter is doing its own thing, which means it's very hard to bring down Greenpeace because you have so many heads. The same thing with All Right. All Right, part of them, their mantra is that you act alone. They have this sort of coordination, but they're also very independent. ISIS has a similar thing. So in a complexity model, I think leadership is very, very different and Nassim Taleb is absolutely right. We do sense-making at the after, and we attribute it to these characteristics, and often it's not true. If you look at, I think, in, I think it was World War II, when the British had cracked the code for how the Germans were attacking, but they kept it a secret. And then you had all these historians who would come up with all these things of like why this happened and why that happened etc and so for example the British had to make decisions of we know that the Germans are going to hit the ship but if we do anything about that they're going to know we've cracked their code so they would let some ships die and there are all kinds of interesting examples where they figured out ways of avoiding the attack without letting the Germans know they'd cracked the code etc but once they realized and they released that, hey, the British had actually cracked the code, it changed history. Because all of those historians who had made these assumptions, this new piece of information changed everything. And that's the essential thing about leadership. Strategy and leadership is about temporary holding positions. You make, you take a holding position based on the assumptions you have right now. Once the assumptions change, your conclusions or your temporary holding positions also need to change. Very few companies are on top of the game and have the time to be always saying, hey, when we made these decisions, it was based on a set of assumptions. Are these assumptions still true? Do they still stand? So I, to answer your question, I do think leadership is very different now. 
you are exposed to a lot of very innovative people and a lot of people who are disrupting their fields. What's some of the interesting examples of change that people have mentioned to you as part of your work, as part of your conversations that you've had on, on this podcast and in other places? One one of my favorite examples is actually it's in one of my I think it's episode forty six, but it was a guy called Nick Scott who talks about innovation in public sector. And the reason I like that example is because that sounds like an oxymoron. If I say to you, Hey, there's some really innovative programming happening in the public sector, people laugh and gawk at you. <laughs> Like, but you know what I mean? Like you're, you're an urban planner. So right. And right. I think, I think urban planning, there's like, there's a lot of innovation happening there. I'm actually learning a lot from reading within your space. Like I came, you and I got to know each other because I think there's a lot to offer in the way people are doing placemaking and city building and what innovation can learn from there. But I like this example because it's, it's called the sandwich shop example. And, what it was is that in order to set up a sandwich shop, the bureaucracy to do that for somebody to set up this company was absolutely horrendous. And they had to go through what we call paper walls, all this bureaucracy, just as for this guy to set up a sandwich shop. The tension is that what they were trying to do with all that bureaucracy was maintain standards and have particular regulation. So, what this group did was that they brought all the regulators and all the people from public service and said, hey, this is what it's like to apply, apply for sandwich shop ownership. And they walked them through that path, through the first person sort of experience, and they realized how horrendous that experience was. And they began to think about, okay, how do we make this a much easier process so that people can open a, something as simple as a sandwich shop, but maintain the standards and regulation that we need for safety around food and public safety. And that really transformed how they thought about the speed in which people can apply and open their sandwich shop. So instead of it taking, for example, I don't really, I can't remember the details of this example. Instead of it taking two years, it would take like two months. And I like that example because it's in, it's in public sector. And it's in one of the last bastions where we would think about innovation. So that's one of my favorite examples. And my second one, again, is also a public sector one. A friend of mine, Sam Laban, who works at the University of Guelph, he talks about procurement, going back to the whole complexity thing. Procurement sort of says, hey, we want to procure these goods and services, but the way the procurement is written, it's assumed that I know exactly what I want on the, on the other side. What he did is that he was working with the city and they realized there's some things in procurement that are simple, there's some things in procurement that are complicated, and there's some things in procurement that are complex. So when you're writing your policy or you're writing your RFP, write the RFP depending on what paradigm you're in. So in a complex, if you realize that the problem that you're looking to address with the RFP is more of a complex problem, you write an RFP that it's open and you have less predictability in it. And that was a massive step for a public sector organization because they have so much oversight and regulation that I find that simple thing of how you just change how you write an RFP, massive, massive turnaround for that particular city. Right. 
I'm going to do some quick hit questions now. I want to ask you two, two different books, okay? The first one is if, if I wanted to understand you, what, what book should I read? And I then want to know what is a book that changed you? Like what's, what's a book that you read that really transformed how you think about things? So what book am I reading to know Kita? And then what book transformed you? I'll answer the second one first because I, I don't even think I can answer that first question because there's so many books. So my, my wife and I, we both love reading and we both love reading management books. So I can't even think about one book that would sum up who I am. That'd be very hard. I'm going to, I'm going to try and think about it while I answer the second question. Um, first question would be Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed. I read that book. And I started reading that book. Let's say I started reading it at 4 p.m. I didn't sleep. I read that book until like 8 a.m. I didn't put it down. And it was because up until that book, I never understood why I hated education, why education didn't work for me, and why I hated learning, etc. And that book is probably one of the most powerful books I've ever read. And it's always on my shelf, and I revisit it, revisit it really often because... It reminds me of, it's sort of the sage on stage. It's the anti-stage on stage approach to education. So the teacher is not this person to espouse knowledge onto the learner. It's more of an approach where people are learning together. That book really transformed me and then my journey into becoming a PhD student because I had to first overcome all kinds of nonsense in my head like, colonial nonsense about you're black you're not that smart you're an athlete i'm i was just diagnosed as dyslexic so again another thing against not being smart so my own internal disruptive conversation that i had first was wrestling with paulo frarley and he was able to explain to me why the system never really worked for me so that can answer that question, that book that really transformed. I don't know if I, I really don't know if I can answer that second question because there's so many books that I, I'm trying to think of like, what's my favorite book? Like, for example, I like um, Nassim Taleb. I like books around learning. Really trying to think of a book that represents me. If you want to understand Kita. What if I wanted to understand disruptive systems? I'm not someone who's going to do this for a PhD, but I'd, I'd like to, uh, you know, over the course of a vacation, delve into a, a book that helped me understand your work. Until you write the book, uh, which I encourage <laughs> you to do. I hope, I hope you do that. What's the, what's the book that I should read? Stephen Hawking wrote some books uh, on physics that were not for physicists, right? They were for regular people to kind of understand what physicists did. Is there a book that, you know, I should be reading or that I could read that would help me see things a little bit differently? I, again, I think it's a, it's going to be a combination of books that will sum it up. But I, the book that I'm going to say today is a book called Domination and the Arts of Resistance. It's by a guy called James Scott. In that book, he talks about something called free space and free space has really framed a lot of my thinking, which is Thinking that happens off stage or work that happens off stage where a group of people 
work outside of the status quo or outside the eyes of those who are dominant and imagine the future that they want to bring forth. So there are lots of examples of this in corporate sector where they, if they want to innovate, they send, like Skunk Labs is a good example of this, where if you want to have an innovation group, don't have the innovation group in the same culture as the other group. Put them in a different compound, send them off. So they need this free space. Um, if you look on the social movement side of it, um, the good example of that is in the sit-ins in the 1960s, what they did is that people don't realize that the peace movement is a very disciplined movement. So what they did is they used to train and coach people on how to be peaceful resistors. So they would practice in the basements of universities and churches. If somebody hits you while you're sitting at a table where you're not supposed to be sitting in inverted commas, how do you respond? And they would train people on that. And people who couldn't take hits or couldn't take hot water being thrown on them weren't allowed to go forward. So they weren't allowed to be part of these sit-ins. So they learned all of that in what they call these free spaces. And I quite like James Scott. His work is really, really influential on on me. His I would read Domination and the Arts of Resistance first, and then I would read Seeing Like a State second. Both those books are really, really they bring things, a lot of things together for me and how I think about and understand the world. Thanks for pushing me on that. I got to admit that. I would not have. I had to really think about that. It's funny because as you're talking, I ordered two of the books. I've read, I've read, <laughs> I've read Seeing Like a State. I thought that was incredible. I just ordered Domination and the Arts of Resistance, which I, I had not read before, um, had not even heard of. And then the Pedagogy of the Oppressed, I ordered two. I'm like, that, that sounds like an incredible book. I'm a book person too. I, I try to go through one or two a week. So you, you've, uh, You've brightened my life, Kita. I'll tell you right now that James Scott reading is not—it's not light reading, but I—it's—it's—it's—it's it's, it's, it's such a powerful book. The, the way he's thinking about power, and the way he's thinking about because all of it is written from studying slaves and serfs. So the way he unpacks power is really, really, really interesting, and it's not from a place of disempowerment is this place of this paradoxical place of empowerment if that makes sense like i really 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 appreciate that that approach yeah tell me what your favorite podcast is right now my favorite podcast is hidden brain i'm actually i actually genuinely like strong towns i'm not thank you that's a plug um i like strong towns right now i like how i built this and I like Hidden Brain. Those would be my three right now. I And I got to give, I like uh, Malcolm Gladwell's revisionist history as hard, well. Hard not to. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Yeah. So it's so, and you know what I like about all of those? A lot of them is not things that I don't know, but it's things that I just need refining on. So especially Malcolm Gladwell, he goes into a level of nuance that I just love. Like I just love how he is able to just like tweak yeah, the nuance of things really quickly. There are a lot of people who rip on Gladwell. I often think you're not really hearing him then, you know? Well, 
Well, I think I think anybody who writes anything is you're going to get criticized. I think you get criticized as well in your writing. Like I, people are people are not going to like my writing, and that's the whole point of discourse. Discourse is meant you put it out there. We have a healthy debate about it. As long as we're debating the idea and not the person, I'm cool. So I have no problem with Malcolm Gladwell, but let's have a conversation about the ideas he's putting out in the world as a difference. Like. I, I, Malcolm Gladwell is probably a good guy. He runs every morning. He's like trying to give people nice ideas in the world. He's a great guy. But let's debate his ideas. So his 10,000 hours, for example, his biggest, the biggest critique against him is the 10,000 hours um, work that he did. I read the guy who he wrote a book called Peak. I can't remember. Again, I'm not remembering his name. Secrets from the New Science of Expertise, that one? Yeah, that one. Yeah. Andres, Andres Eriksson and Robert Poole. Yeah, so Andres Eriksson. So Eriksson is where um, Malcolm Gladwell got that 10,000 hours thing from. Okay. And I was reading Malcolm Gladwell and then started following Eriksson's work. And then he recently published his work and read his work. And Eriksson talks a, spends a chunk of that book, like three or four pages, talking about what Gladwell got wrong. And I think that's a very legitimate thing to do because what I want to know is how much closer are we to understanding this particular dynamic? You can beef on Gladwell all you want, but he's got that idea into the world in a way that I don't think Erickson would have gotten it out by himself. So to me, and also history talks about this, most great athletes, etc., they become great athletes because they had a rival. They had somebody who was who they were in dialogue with. So beefing on somebody and hating somebody or not liking a person, I think, is one thing. But I think let's debate people's ideas and what, what they're putting into the world. Like there are lots of athletes out there that I think as individuals, for example, Kanye West, I think as an individual, he's a total idiot. As a producer, he's amazing. So, and I think people don't make that distinction often enough. So, right. Does that make sense? No, yeah. totally. If you weren't doing what you're doing now, what other profession would you like to give a go at? Soccer player, professional soccer player. <laughs> um, actually, I think I should have gone into law or teaching. I think either one of those I should have done. Or actually, um, software engineer. I think I would have enjoyed doing software engineering as well. Let me ask you about soccer player. Are, are you at all athletic? Did you grow up at all athletic? <laughs> I did. Yeah, I did. I, I played soccer at a pretty high level and actually played rugby for Trinidad for like a brief, brief stint. Brief stint here. So I've always been like athletic. Yeah. You and I are friends online, but I, I haven't picked up whether or not uh, you have kids. I don't have kids yet. Okay. So you Still you're, practicing. you're not living vicariously through your child's athletic <laughs> achievements. <laughs> no, 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 not yet. Uh, but I I wonder I always wonder what kind of parent I would be in that respect. Because I've had to come to terms with as somebody who's from the Caribbean, I like to think of myself as a laid back chill guy. And I'm anything but laid back and chill is what I've learned. I'm a very intense kind of person. Um, so I wonder 
in in kids how demanding I would be because I do try to hold people to a high standard. So I wonder. I don't know. I'll let I'll check up with you in a couple of years and let you know if I'm living living vicariously through kids. I would love that. <laughs> my uh, you know my own experience. I'm a dad of daughters, which I never. You know, never dreamed I would be picking them up from school today and taking them to dance and then watching. Excited to watch. I'm excited to see what happens when you get to that point in your you're, life. You're, you're, you're driving your daughter to be a physicist. Yeah, I would love that. Yes. <laughs> I, I, do, I, I am subtly doing that. Yes. <laughs> There's a little bit of guilt associated for me. Last question. Finish this sentence for me. D- disruption is like what? I think today I would say disruption is like jazz or dancing. For people to disrupt the sector system, I think they have to know a deep set of skills in order to be prepared to improvise while they're on the dance floor. So one of the things that blew my mind recently is that, and this might this might sound really simple, but it blew my mind that we only have... 10 numbers, 0 to 9, but yet that 0 to 9 produces so much complexity in the world. We can do so much math with 0 to 9. Same thing with scales. They're only about 7 notes, but that produces so many complexities and beautiful sort of symphonies. My, my friend, DNA is made up of four strands, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's another example. Yeah. That's another example. DNA is like four strains. Like, right. And it produces all this complexity. So I think there's an analogy there of what disruption is like. But going back to my thing with dancing and music, you can't be a good jazz player unless you know all these scales and you know them free very, very well. You can't be a good dancer. Well, at least that's I'll use salsa dancing because that's what I know. Unless you have a deep set of basic moves and deep set of basic skills. I realized that when I got good at dancing, it was because I knew enough moves that if a girl or whoever was following made a mistake, I had another move in my arsenal to improvise and make it look like that's exactly what I intended to happen there. And I think disruption is a little bit like that. And people miss the going deep part. So I think in order to improvise and be very good at disruption, you have to go deep in order to make that music happen and in order to dance like that. That's my metaphor today. Keita Deming, Disruptive Conversations. Uh, You're going to take a little break in releasing these, but then uh, we'll be back for season two. And I'll just say as, you know, on behalf of everybody who listens to these, I'm looking forward to that. Thank you so much. Chuck, thank you for doing this, helping me wrap up the last episode of but not last, of this season of Disruptive Conversations. I'm looking forward to what season two will bring, and I've already interviewed a number of people for that season two, so season two is going to be great, and I'm looking forward to building it, and without the podcast, I wouldn't have met people like you, so I'm really happy that it's happening. I'm likewise grateful. Thanks for the opportunity to chat with you again, and let's keep in touch. Will do, will do. I feel like we will. I hope so. I'll talk to you soon. Take care. You soon. Cheers. Bye-bye. We need your help. If you think the Strong Town's message is important, don't keep it to yourself. 
pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org. Drastic times require what? Drastic measures, yes! Who said that? They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made the city? I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah. 